Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student in international relations at the University of Sussex, and I'm the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome our today's host, Polly Pallister-Wilkins, political geographer and associate professor at the University of Amsterdam and board member of the EISA. Welcome to another edition of the EISA Voices podcast, where we will be discussing what is academic freedom. Our professional space continues to be rocked by attacks on academic freedom. We see colleagues facing institutional repression, public curtailment and professional reprisals over their research findings and their public political advocacy. But what is academic freedom? Why does it matter? And what can we as a community of scholars do to uphold it? To discuss this, we are joined by three wonderful colleagues. Tony Hustrup, Lewis Turner, and Joel Quirk. Tony Hustrup is Chair in Global Politics at the University of Manchester in the UK, where she researches questions of peace and security in Africa, feminist, post-colonial, and decolonial approaches to international relations, and regional and global governance. Tony is the former editor of the Journal of Common Market Studies and is currently on the core editorial team of Security Dialogue. Lewis Turner is a lecturer in international politics at Newcastle University in the UK and is a researcher of humanitarianism in the Middle East. He is a trustee of the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies and a member of its Committee on Academic Freedom. Joel Quirk is a professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa, where his research focuses on, amongst other things, slavery and abolition, and repairing historical wrongs. Alongside this, Joel is co-chair of the Gender Equity Advisory Committee at the University of the Witwatersrand. Welcome, Tony. Hello. Welcome, Lewis. Hi, Polly. And welcome, Joel. Hey, Polly. Okay, so we hear a lot of talk about concerns over academic freedom and attacks on academic freedom these days. The European International Studies Association is committed to protecting the academic freedom of our members and constituencies in order to foster an ethical space for research and teaching and to stand in solidarity with members of our community who are targeted or made vulnerable in their work. As a result of this, EISA has been active in responding to violations of academic freedom in research, research dissemination, teaching and academic practices in Europe and at academic institutions and affiliates elsewhere in the world. But my first question to you, to each of you, is what does academic freedom mean to you? And so I want to start maybe with Tony. 
Uh, thanks, Polly. I think like a typical academic that there's no straight answer to that particular question. So I'm going to geek out here a tiny bit. Um, in preparation for our meeting today, I was reading uh, a new book by Dina Kiwan. It's called Academic Freedom and the transnational production of knowledge. It's really accessible stuff. And I, you know, I came to it because of the knowledge production dimension, which is what I'm interested in, but I definitely stayed for the academic freedom bit. Because one of the things that the author, it's a very simple argument, and but at the core, I guess, in, in the context of our discussion is that what academic freedom is uh, must be understood in the specific context within which you're engaging. So you mentioned earlier ISA, ISA is an American United States institution, as it were, even though it's kind of international. So understandings of academic freedom and indeed freedom of speech is very much rooted within that particular tradition, which kind of poses a bit of a problem for trying to kind of define academic freedom. I think the academic, that academic freedom is specific to context is important, particularly when we're sort of thinking about it in relation to freedom of speech as well, which tends to really emphasize the legal dimension as opposed to the normative one. And I think in a sense, that's kind of what links academic freedom to freedom of speech, the legal dimension. And I think that, you know, even in, in, in that linkage, there's an assumption that we all kind of have a common understanding, but actually the history the contextual history is really important. So what might be considered hate speech in the UK, which is where I'm based, is very different from the US context, for example. And so going back to the UK context, the idea of academic freedom is relatively new. So it's just included in a tiny clause in the 1988 Education Reform Act. And that defines academic freedom as being bound up in broader civil liberties and human rights. And here we already again see that link to freedom of speech. And it talks about the responsibility to respect democratic rights and freedom of others and the development of open democratic and collegial forms of institutional governance. It talks about staff playing a preeminent role in determining curriculum, assessment, standards, and research priorities. And this is a good framing because it sort of says legally that there is something to defend. But it can also be a bit problematic because it doesn't really consider the sort of normative dimensions, which is where I think um, the University College Union, the main union um, for UK-based academics and other university staff speaks, of course, to the legal rights that academics have because they are a union, they want to protect us. But it also speaks to how academic freedom is supposed to question and test received knowledge and to put forward new ideas and controversial or unpopular opinions without academics being placed in jeopardy of potentially losing their job. So again, in this definition, it broadens it out from the ERA definition. It's quite consistent with the advocacy of UCU, which reinforces this idea that there is no neutral way of understanding academic freedom. The one thing that for me tends to resonate, however, is I accept that contestation, but I also feel that Academic freedom has to pertain to all aspects of your job and, you know, that there is no stricture in being able to do your job. As long as that doing your job is grounded in an ethics of care, 
but both your colleagues as well as the students within that particular academic environment. So it's related more to aspects of knowledge production, hence the attractiveness of Kiwan's book, um, linked to teaching widely, but ensuring that no harm is coming to your students, researching and engaging broadly in a range of scholarships so that your arguments are situated to challenge, to build on, uh, and to bolster existing arguments. I think sometimes, however, that folks can shoehorn what might be considered personal beliefs into that space of knowledge production. I'm usually not one to draw boundaries um, because universities are not segregated from the rest of society. So those boundaries, I'm not sure, are always useful. But I think in the current moment where there's a lot of campaigning, and I think a lot of malignant, malicious intent around what it is that academics do, it might be useful to sort of remember the importance of that ethics of care, the fact that academic freedom is very much around knowledge production. So you can't you can have your beliefs that might be protected under freedom of speech, but you can be challenged on those beliefs when you're within an academic space. It also means that the academic space is not required to give platform to your beliefs, particularly when they're not situated within a broader knowledge base. So that sort of stricture and it can cut both ways, right? So, it, it, you know, it, it might restrict some of what I might want to do personally, but I think that that might be okay for the common good as long as there's an ethic of care uh, linked to that. I'm going to stop there because I'm really keen to hear what Lewis and Joel have to say. Thank you, Tony. That was such a comprehensive overview. Um, but I'm wondering, Lewis, do you have anything to, to add before we hear from Joel? Yeah. So. I mean, it's sort of a surprisingly tricky question, and I'm glad you started with Tony, um, who did a great job. There's definitely a lot of the things that Tony said that I would agree with and, and want to kind of emphasize and and second, particularly the points about uh, how different academic freedom might look in different contexts and understanding that there's not a kind of one size fits all, I suppose, for what academic freedom might be. From my perspective, because I do quite a lot of work on an academic freedom committee, if you ask me what academic freedom is, my mind immediately goes to the sort of legislative framework that I feel like we're quoting ad nauseum um, and, and very regularly reminding universities of the 2023 Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act which also defines academic freedom as not quoting verbatim, but the freedom within the law to question and test received wisdom, put forward new ideas, including controversial or unpopular ones, without placing yourself at risk of being adversely affected, for example, in terms of promotion or losing your job or privileges at your institution and so on. Um, and I think that does capture a lot. Um, and, and can be quite a useful framework. I also think linking to one of the points Tony made, the phrase in that definition that says freedom within the law is also an, an important one um, because uh, exactly as Tony said, what constitutes hate speech in one context will not constitute it in another. And of course, the, the legal boundaries about what should be permissible and impermissible speech are themselves going to be contested and given that, as we all know, law is a tool of power, not a sort of neutral arbiter within society, freedom within the law is already potentially 
putting what we might think of as unjust or unethical restrictions on academic freedom. But I do think that framework captures a lot. And I think the other thing I wanted to maybe add to that was, as I think we may talk about in more detail later, it's important to remember that that definition not only captures the headline aspects of our job, so the papers that are published or the talks that are held, but it also really filters down, I think, properly understood to a whole range of different daily micro practices that can facilitate or impinge academic freedom, ranging from working conditions to bureaucracy to department or university environments. All these different elements of it, I think, often are not forgotten about, but they are less prominent in some of the discussions about academic freedom, but I think properly understood also fall under that definition and should be discussed within that same context. Thank you, Lewis. Joel, anything to add? Uh, There are definite advantages in in going last, I have to kind of concede. But I just want to throw maybe a couple more things into the mix. Um, I have to confess that the term freedom is is just in its very essence something I've kind of always been very ambivalent about because freedom to shop, freedom to, you know, that there's a version of freedom which is a kind of libertarian kind of conception of freedom where all the things that constrain us disappear and, and people can say and do whatever they want, except, of course, they can't because there's there's structures that, that kind of limit what we can say and do. So freedom to me often kind of conceals power rather than, than enable speech and action. But at the same time, I, I just, <laughs> there's still something quintessentially kind of important and significant about it that, that you don't want to kind of give up entirely. So I guess my remarks start with that ambivalence. And, and I'm speaking here as someone who has been in South Africa for kind of 11 or 12 years now, but not South African, originally Australian, worked in the UK for a bit. And from a South African context, academic freedom really does kind of cut both ways. So so under apartheid, there's open universities and academic freedom is here invoked as kind of in opposition to a white supremacist regime and and the strong defense of freedom of speech, association, civic engagement, obviously plays an emancipatory kind of political force in that context. But once apartheid ended and the new dispensation comes in in 1994, um, academic freedom in South African universities can be used in a reactionary context as well as something that is used as, as something gets invoked to kind of hold back the tide. So, so academic freedom becomes the, the freedom to teach the same Eurocentric curriculum that everyone's all wanted to teach previously. Academic freedom becomes the freedom to make hiring based around this, this very selective understanding of meritocracy, which tends to mean reproducing the, the same kind of patterns within the academy that existed under apartheid. So there's an ambivalence there in terms of of kind of how freedom gets invoked and applied that I think it's really worth drawing attention to because in the wake of kind of discussions of decolonization and reconstituting the curriculum and grappling with, with kind of knowledge economies, academic freedom becomes the bulwark in defense of a reactionary status quo. 
so I, I think there's there's tensions there that are kind of worth highlighting. So, you know, there's a bunch of people in the US who, who want to do this, this over-the-top version of critical race theory as the basis for intervening in, in courses and hiring and programs in ways that we might otherwise feel objectionable. But the, the, the economics department at Chicago is, is similarly going to invoke its, its academic freedom in order to justify and defend the central place of, of a kind of neoliberal economic model. So there's ambivalence there. And, and I think it's worth here distinguishing at least a little bit between freedom for individuals and freedom for institutions. So, so for the most part, institutions try and position themselves as, as kind of neutral arbiters where they, they don't take a position. But we know they do take a position at times. You know, you know European universities were, were very keen to support the war in Ukraine and then people juxtaposed that uncritical institutional support with the kind of elaborate dances they've engaged in around atrocities in Gaza. So the institution at one level, I think, is worth bringing into the frame. And, and we need to be very careful about that idea of, of institutions as neutral arbiters and academics as the people who are speaking and acting independently, because there's always going to be a dance between those two, which is difficult for us to get around. So, so there may be occasions where we want our universities as institutions to take a stand on social justice. And there may be occasions where we want our institutions to, to, to kind of take a back seat because the exercise of individual academic freedom is pointing in directions that might be politically contested or unpalatable or so on. So to, to my mind, at least, there's something important about freedom as a concept and its exercise and debates such as this one. But I don't think I want to be too comfortable in holding this up as an absolute ideal because freedom can be weaponized in all kinds of political conversations and not necessarily for causes and, and agendas that we might want to embrace or support. Thank you so much. Okay, you each have professional roles where issues of academic freedom are either explicit or implicit. Could you talk us through how questions of academic freedom shape or have shaped your professional lives as academics? This time, let's start with Lewis. So I think the main thing I would say in terms of how academic freedom uh, shapes my professional life is mostly right now it keeps me busy. <laughs> um, I've, I've been a member of the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies Committee on Academic Freedom for about four years um, and a trustee of the organization for about three and a half. And over that time, we've witnessed the amount of work that we're being asked to do by our colleagues. And I, I don't say that in a bad way. Obviously, that's what we're there for. But the, the number of times when people are asking us to intervene, the number of cases where uh, people need support or where people are being victimized or unjustly disciplined seems to have grown uh, significantly in the past few years and exponentially in the past few months since the events of 7th of October and the subsequent 
I mean, huge and multifaceted backlash against people speaking about Palestinian human rights on campuses or people speaking about, you know, adopting critical and and particularly decolonial perspectives on Palestine-Israel. So I think, yeah, the first thing I would say is it's been keeping me busy. But it's also, I think, that work has been extremely revealing. And it's really, this work has really shaped my view of the profession. And I think this links quite closely to the point that Joel was making about how our institutions are not neutral arbiters and the different times that they choose to take a stand or not take a stand. My own university has a statement on its website Um, I believe it's still there, I checked recently, saying that the university supports Ukrainian self-determination and territorial integrity. I did once ask in a meeting senior leaders of the institution when we would see a statement supporting Palestinians' right to self-determination and territorial integrity and was told that that was a bit complicated, Lewis. Um, And so... I think it's it's doing this academic freedom work and seeing the ways that institutions maneuver, seeing the ways that our employers respond to government pressure uh, and how often they collapse in the face of even quite seemingly light government pressure has reinforced my understandings of how the sector works and my understandings of the different ways that neoliberalizations and marketizations which have been going on in the UK for decades, of course, among many other countries, have really profoundly shaped the institutions that that we work for. So I think in terms of how it's shaped my professional life, I've really had those views reinforced and seen, I think, up close how institutions operate when they are under pressure. But I also think it's helped me to think more and see more about what's really important in the work that we're doing. And in, in a sense, being an Academic Freedom Committee member is one of many administrative hats that we wear, or one of the various admin roles that we have, at least that's kind of how it's categorized. But actually, it's it's definitely one of, if not the most meaningful administrative role, or indeed, perhaps even more widely, so the professional role I've done in terms of supporting and defending colleagues, helping to collectively stand our ground around uh, you know, research and teaching around the Middle East in general and, and Palestine in particular, but also as a process of building networks of solidarity um, among critical scholars across the country and beyond when certain colleagues or institutions or centres are, are under threat. So, yeah, I think certainly the last few months is quite profoundly uh, shaped and reinforced both my views of how the sector works, but also what's important for us to to do and focus on and spend our time on within those institutions and within that sector. Thank you, Lewis. Joel? Yeah, thanks, Lewis. I, 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 if it's okay, Polly, I'm just kind of going to go on a slight tangent, if that's okay. And I, I promise to circle back to the question you actually asked. But I, I, I think it's worth noting in this context from a South African vantage point that, that the conflict in Gaza and Palestine and Israel looks a little bit different than it does within a European context. And and having not had a good run of things of, of late, you know, the entire South African nation is is energized right now with the, the, the case that went to the International Court of Justice. 
um, and the connections between what, what's happening in Israel and the history of, of white supremacy in South Africa means there's a kind of acute symbolic and historical connection that I think helps to, to make that case and also kind of creates a very different kind of conversation. But I don't want to make the mistake, as so many have tried to portray it in, in Europe and North America, of presenting the South African position as anomalous or exceptional. So it, we know internationally and globally that, that, you know, the number of states that have come out in support of South Africa are in grand excess of the people who are in support of Israel and that in a majority kind of understanding of the world, that the idea that, that Israel-Palestine is controversial <laughs> plays a little bit differently than it might in the United States or the UK or elsewhere. So w- within a South African context, major supermarkets who, who sell Israeli products as a consequence of public pressure have, have withdrawn the products that have a made in Israel badge. So, so I think... There's an argument about what is legitimate and normal and, and, and the permissible bounds of, of speech and, and politics and engagement that is highly contextual. And, and if we take the whole planet as our stage and not just the, the, the kind of settler colonies of, of, of Europe and, and so on, that the Israel-Palestine cause looks substantially different. Um, and I really think that's worth kind of emphasizing. Um, so, so that was the point that I went off on a tangent on. In, in terms of how I think academic freedom operates, I think it's worth emphasizing that there's a real difference between the day-to-day content of policies as drafted and then the stress tests that arise when the, the media spotlight is kind of highly focused on kind of issues. And we saw this at my own university, Vitz, where the, the, the student protests of, of Fees Must Fall in 2015-16, we had an academic freedom policy, we had a protest policy, and within the space of one week of protest action, both of those policies being kind of thrown out the window, and we had a completely different understanding of what protest was and what speech was and, and what role academics might play in terms of of contributing to a conversation about higher education in South Africa. So I think we have to keep in mind that it's those stress tests that reveal most significantly what our commitments to kind of speech and freedom and activism kind of look like. And when things are going kind of normal, so to speak, um, you can kind of read one thing from policies and then when things are actually tested, they play very differently. And, and I do think here uh, I would briefly kind of emphasize that a lot of the time there's the spectacular stress tests, the, the fees must fall type things, but I don't want to be read as suggesting that the everyday is fine as well. And here I'd kind of point to how university administrators can kind of chip away at autonomy through policy and practice. So, for example, um, ethics approval regimes will create conditions that 
circumscribe what counts as knowledge. They'll gatekeep um, research into university practices, for example. I, I've kind of seen this as, as someone who kind of works on gender-based harm. Those categories of applications get treated not as ethical matters, but as risk and public relations matters. And, and I think there's times where lawyers and legal compliance requirements and a whole bunch of impenetrable legalese and dense institutional kind of, of, of layers of, of gatekeeper and policy um, is not something that, that we necessarily see as, a, as a, a kind of barrier to academic freedom, but in lots of ways is a kind of white anting of an intellectual and political project because the minute you're doing something controversial, you have to look at the room booking policy and you never had to look at the room booking policy again. If you're engaging in some form of legal action um, that is on a controversial topic, all of a sudden other things come into to focus and they get mobilized and so on. So I, I want to kind of draw attention to that because it's a fallacy to assume it's fine until the test comes because the, the fine and the test are inextricably related. The same logics apply in both. And then finally, as a concluding thought, I think if we care about academic freedom, we have to avoid the, the idea that, that fighting for academic freedom requires kind of a spectacular performance, a public utterance. I actually think in a lot of cases, it's within the belly of the beast in terms of getting kind of students' permission to do work that administrators might not like or creating space for courses that are otherwise controversial. So I, I don't want us to think about freedom and politics and praxis as something that only operates in the university pushing outwards. I actually think it's within the university in those meetings that no one wanted to go to because someone put them on a Friday afternoon that you can actually get quite a lot done around the integrity of the academic project. So that everyday stuff, I think, is neglected at our peril. Great. Thanks for that, Joel. I feel like we could also have a whole discussion about the way in which various funding ecologies also impact academic freedom, right? I mean, I realized I didn't put that as a question, but I, as someone who works in a, in a context where getting third money streams is integral for our research, you know, you really do see the ways in which, for example, the European Research Council and what it claims to be saying is uh, are areas of, of research that they want to be focusing on is actually in some ways a restriction on academic freedom. Well, we could argue restricts academic freedom if you have to work on particular things in order to get the money or you have to ask questions in a particular way in order to be able to uh, access funding. But I will stop talking and I will pass the mic to Tony. Uh, I think actually both uh, Lewis and Joel really spoke to some of what's in my head, which is, you know, I, I think speaking um, from different contexts, it's amazing that we have similar experiences or similar thoughts around academic freedom. I think although I sort of sit as well in like Lewis on um, as a trustee of a professional association that is charged with defending academic freedom, 
I have to admit that until recently, wasn't really something I thought about in that specific role until as, as an officer, I signed a letter that said, we, I found it very troubling that a minister of state would use social media to target another academic because they did not like their personal opinion. And I think this is important uh, for a range of reasons, but perhaps a few here. One, we could definitely see how themes of academic freedom can elide with subjects around freedom of speech. So someone said something in their personal, wrote something in their personal capacity, which actually, from my own personal opinion, and I'm emphasizing personal here, was actually not controversial at all. They were simply highlighting that government behavior on a particular political issue could be problematic. That is a personal opinion, which everyone is allowed to make. But they were targeted because they held a specific role. Their personal opinion would have had no impact on that role because the function of that role was quite distinct. And so I wrote a letter with my colleagues that I felt very strongly about. And I'm sure if you spoke to some of those colleagues, they might agree with you that I actually felt it could have been more strongly worded than it was. Um, because for me, this was a clear case of an overreach and the, the sort of things, the sort of reactionary attitudes that Joel was mentioning, and we sort of see it happening in, in politics a lot. And what I found really interesting about that is... By and large, as far as I know, we haven't been responded to yet by the government minister because I don't really think that there was anything they could query on the facts of it. Um, we did get a letter from someone who effectively claimed that we were hiding behind academic freedom as a way to uh, circumvent the law. Um, so, you, you know, again, Polly, you might understand why I've been really interested in this particular theme, which wasn't really on my radar before. And then I started thinking, well, had it been on my radar? Because it had. And it goes back to the point that Joel was just making around the everyday micro practices. Last year, I was applying for um, uh, ethics approval for research. And I put in all my work. I mean, this research, for all intents, you know, amongst us would be considered a really basic, unfortunately, in that I was wanting to interview Gov like policy decision makers, policy officials. So, you know, the least controversial stuff. And I had gone, you know, I spent hours describing the context of the research, what I wanted to do, how the fact, it was the fact that I wanted to ask one question, which I'd put in my description, which was to say to the official, if you were going to pass on your role to someone else tomorrow without letting your colleagues know that you were not going to be there. How would you tell that person how to do your job? It's a part of this um, idea of interview to the double, right? So it's a way to sort of elicit the ways in which people do their everyday work um, in a constrained time. And I explained all of that. And the first response I got back from the ethics committee, they acknowledged that I'd done a really good job in elaborating everything I wanted to do. And then went on to say, we know that this will be a weird ask, but it would be great if you could give us a list of the questions you will ask. 
to my mind, in making that request, they wanted to change how I did interviews, even though I had explained based on the literature and the knowledge that exists, how I was going to do this research, cited all the literature, which they had access to. But in fact, by asking that question, they wanted me to change how I thought about my project and how I did my research. And I challenged this on the basis of academic freedom, rather than this is actually outside of your remit, which it was. It was a methodological issue, not an ethics issue. And I took it up because I wanted to see how far I could go. In a way, it was that stress test that Joel was talking about. And the response I got was really telling because the response was academic freedom is defined in law and this does not constitute a breach of academic freedom. Of course, you might have an issue with with this request being made, but that's something that the ethics committee, probably within its purview to ask questions about methodology. And I'm like, yes, you can ask questions about methodology, but you cannot ask me to change how I choose to do research. And that's the point, that the law, as it exists for academic freedom, almost anywhere, does not capture those everyday instances and problems. Because, of course, in the end, to just get it through, I just give them a list of questions. At this point, I'm guessing what my interlocutors might say in response to my initial question, right? And I I think at the end of my response to my complaint, it was like, well, you know, you could have just done this. This wasn't essential. You could have just done what you wanted to do and said no. And I'm like, I'm sorry, that is not the impression you give of an ethics committee. Also, if I could just do what I wanted, why do we have an ethics committee, right? And, and, And so I think I agree completely that it is useful for us to have a legal framework to protect us individually, but we cannot forget about those institutional dynamics because of what I said earlier, that you know the institution itself is not separate from society in terms of how it behaves. And we know a lot of universities are with their first part of call is always to protect themselves. And we've sort of seen this happen a lot over the last few months. And that while I think that it is really important um, ethically to stand up and against those uh, more ridiculous and outrageous defiances of academic freedom, and that's where we tend to see people talking a lot online, I think we should be paying attention to the everyday, the stuff that people just go along with, have to bear with, because you know they just need to get it moving. Um, and that, you know, wherever it is that we sit, uh, we all do research, all our research is subject to something like ethics, and we need to sort of keep questioning those processes and not just sort of rely on the law, not the least of because of something um, that Lewis said earlier, that, you know, the law is the law. It does not mean that it is actually just. Fantastic. Oh, I really feel like we could talk all day about all of these kind of, you know, implicit micro ways, everyday ways in which academic freedom is curtailed, right? I mean, just on the room bookings thing, for example, I mean, that's a perfect example. And how just, you know, it becomes too difficult. So you just don't bother, you know, because we're all really busy. We're all trying to juggle like 20 different things at the same time. And you get to a point where you're like, I can't be bothered. Oh, yeah, you give in. Here's a list of questions I just made up and I'm never going to ask. But thank you very much. It's now taken half my afternoon, half my afternoon that could have been spent doing 
something else. Anyway, oh, I, I recognize this so, so beautifully from my own institution. So we, we continue to see these attacks on academic freedom in multiple ways, right? This is still an ongoing question, an ongoing, an un, unfinished, unsettled issue. Um, and I'm wondering if we can think a little bit more deeply about why this is, right? I mean, political changes, different political social contexts. But maybe, Joel, you could you could take this up first about why academic freedom continues to be um, a site of contestation. Yeah, thanks, Polly. That, that, that's the easy one, right? Like, no pressure. <laughs> I, I mean, there's just a million kind of elements to that thing. I mean, we we know it gets tied to to to, to populism and and challenges to expertise. It's an understanding of, of of kind of what culture looks like and the fact that as societies have become more diverse, the the common core around which people seek kind of a shared understanding of the world kind of phrase. You've got. Uh, a recognition that that academics have have kind of been at the vanguard of kind of puncturing the the comforting mythologies that the people tells themselves about their place in the world and how great it is and and people like those comforting mythologies and that tell them how great their place in the world is and you know this I think it's inevitable that there was an image of an ivory tower it stood above it stood neutral and apart from from the fray but of course it was a small kind of handful of people who could afford ridiculous fees and the, the leisure required to study kind of and, and so on and so forth. And, and, and quite understandably, that version of the academy reflected the preferences and perspectives of the people who were in it. And as universities become open to more people and we have a more diverse range of, of perspectives and positions and researchers within them, that the center is never going to hold in that context. And universities aren't the driving force behind this. I, I, I do genuinely think that these, these right-wing attacks on, on critical race theory and other ridiculous kind of pablum um, massively overstate the effect that I and people like me have upon <laughs> my students. <laughs> like, if I had the capacity to, to, to influence the students coming through my, my seminars and courses in the way that, that the right wing assumes I could, I'd be much more effective at my job than I actually am. But at the same time, there's, there's a kind of shift in the, the zeitgeist of public culture and space. There's just less agreement. And I think universities are downstream of that rather than the progenitors of it, if that makes sense. I also think that this iconography of the ivory tower just completely misses what a modern university looks like. I mean, it's it's grant funding, it's throughput, it's metrics and rankings and grades. You know, it's it's a kind of neoliberal microcosm of the kind of densest level of market logics and effects. And part of that is that that people want education as a return on investment and when people kind of stand up and go no it has intrinsic value it helps you understand the world differently and deeper there's a culture shock there between this this idea of of a university as a space to kind of understand the world a bit differently and the other version which says that 
you know, you should be making the maximum amount of money. And that's partly because universities are now insanely expensive and people understandably kind of want to see some return on, on, on time spent. So there's no simple or kind of easy to answer to this. Um, and in lots of ways, I, I think that academic freedom and that conversation is tied to this kind of rearguard action that that's being fought. I, I've seen it described as the, the, the side of normalcy to, to kind of fight for a degree of normalcy in the wake of a kind of xenophobic, racist, reactionary tide. But the problem I have with that, and, and it's really fundamental, is that normalcy wasn't working either. So engaging in this defense of a status quo just because there's a wave of stuff coming over that, that just looks a little bit worse and toxic and horrific and, you know, whatever Trump is doing in any given moment is, is kind of the spirit of that wave. But, yeah, I mean, if we want to defend academic freedom, we're also defending hierarchies. We're defending kind of you know, funding streams and, and partnerships with, with kind of industry where, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that universities do as spaces that we might want to object to. And, and we know that those things, when they happen and, and objections are made to them, will be defended using academic freedom in the same way that, that me might want to defend other things under the guise of academic freedom. So... I don't know that this thing has a ballast in integrity that exists outside the moment. I think, you know, like we're running, the waves are crashing and we're running to academic freedom because it offers the slightly higher ground, but that doesn't necessarily mean that within that broader kind of confluence of factors, we want to just simply go stop to the wave because what we have just isn't enough either. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Joel. And I think that goes back to your earlier points about freedom, right? And this notion that freedom is an absolute, when for many people, freedom has not been an absolute historically, right? And maybe people are paying attention to academic freedom now, or it's become an issue now, because the people who were historically insulated from some of those attacks on what is now seen as an attack on academic freedom are now the subjects of it where historically you know marginalized oppressed discriminated against racialized communities have never had that freedom you know these sorts of questions i think play out in many different uh, places and, and spaces tony can i move to you now yeah i mean i think um when i was listening to joel speaking i was sort of thinking Number one, I'm really grateful that we're having this conversation because it's really getting me to think a bit deeper about um, the extent and how we run to the higher ground of academic freedom when actually it's probably a sinking ship uh, itself when you sort of think about all the hierarchies that are inherent within that, um, even within our specific space. And I think in the end, I sort of keep coming back to, you know, if, if I go back to Polly's questions, you know, why, why are we having this now? I'm going back to, you know, the fact that although academic freedom is something that resonates in the sort of higher education context, the reactionary elements against that, that make us grab onto academic freedom really underscores sort of that 
almost invisible line between what is happening in society at large and what might be happening uh, within universities. But also going back to uh, Joel's point that, and, and yours, Polly, is that perhaps what we should think about when we're thinking about academic freedom is that we should think about periods, right? That, you know, um, there was an era where upholding academic freedom was sort of upholding racist mores, for example. Would we here in this space defend that? Of course not, based on our understanding of the world and, and what our uh, ethical bents are. Um, whereas now we, you know, for very good reason, we hold on to academic freedom. And so in a sense, why I hold on to academic freedom with the caveat of, you know, the ethics of care has to be there, but, you know, in when I'm no longer in the acad- academy, what might be needed might be very different. I think that we cannot discount, of course, this uh, reactionary element as, as, as the reason why and why it's happening now. And it's very clear that the reactionary element isn't necessarily just about coming from within the university, but actually has to do with a lot of the bigger things that are going on in the world. But I think the other dimension of that is to, um, you know, going back to I think a point that Joel made earlier, that uh, conversations around academic freedom, um, they're not the same. The, you know, the conversation we're having at UK universities is probably not the same as the ones that they would be having um, in Uganda. And, and um, for that reason, it might make more sense to talk about academic freedom. It might even make less sense to talk about academic freedom. Um, who knows? It has to depend on that very, very specific context. But the thing that is clear in all contexts is that those reactionary elements exist and they don't necessarily start from within the university. And in that sense, then to sort of fight back against it, because I think our job is not simply to acknowledge that is happening because of this elements. Um, it is happening because of racism, because of white supremacy, because of um, misogyny, and because a lot of those who've always had power do not want to give up power. Academic freedom, unfortunately, however, I think often assumes that the institution will hold. And the truth is, as we know, as we've experienced in our lifetime, I guess we didn't think we would, but we have, that the institution, you know, as someone who studies institutions and goes on and on about how institutions are hard to change, it's surprising how quickly <laughs> they can change when those who have power decide that they want it to change. Um, and I think that's why we cannot rest on our laurels. We cannot just assume that the institution will hold because we have this idea of something called academic freedom. I think that that's a bit of a privilege that we have as academics, a, uh, a privilege that we actually take for granted. Uh, we took it for granted in the UK before someone decided, well, actually, maybe it's a good idea to put it in law. Um, we've taken it for granted because, you know, we have a union that can defend us. We have um, professional associations that consistently uh, defend us, so the ones who are the co-face who are doing the work. But we cannot leave it up to them because, again, the university is not, it's not segregated away from society. In a sense, if, if the reason for why we really care about academic freedom is about knowledge production that is based on evidence uh, and we see the university still as a public good, then we cannot 
um, we cannot give in. And I think in a sense, then that separation that some might think is a good idea, you know, it works both ways. It might not be such a good idea to have that separation of freedom of speech, knowing some of the dangers that it might also pose. Thanks, Tony. And Lewis, can you take this up? So I would, I mean, start by seconding everything that, that's just been said in, in that discussion. And I think, um, I think that's, yeah, I think what, what uh, Joel and Tony and yourself, Polly, said is exactly right in terms of understanding the landscape and why we see academic freedom having such a prominent place um, in a lot of kind of contemporary political social discussions and, and where, where that comes from. Um, I think then, rather than repeat what what others have said, I just sort of add two two small things. Um, one of which, which I think adds to the environment that we've been talking about, which I observe and I don't fully feel like I understand, but is I think at least in the the, the context I'm in, a media obsession with universities, and on some level I can understand that. And I think on some level, it's about the um, class background or class status and interests of the actually very narrow segment of society that occupy positions in what's called mainstream media. Um, And on some level, I think it's about the inaccurate, perhaps stereotypical visions of universities as ivory towers and so on, and therefore the status that they hold in contemporary discussions. But some of it, I still feel like there must be something else that I don't get about this obsession. So, so, I mean, for example, last month, the Daily Telegraph, which is one of the main broadsheet newspapers in the UK, a right-wing broadsheet newspaper, had a front-page story about um, AI and first-year um, teaching practices in some courses at Oxford. Of course, it was Oxford that they're focused on. And it was about the ways that uh, lecturers are encouraging students to use AI in what was, in fact, a formative assessment. So none of their grades were even determined by this. And this made front-page news, which is, I mean, unhinged, I think, that that in, in this contemporary landscape, that can be prioritised and put on the front pages of, you know, one of the, within the mainstream discourse, the main media outlets in the country. And I think, I think that is connected to all of the factors we've talked about, the image of universities, the place they hold in society, the ways they're seen as, as radical, um, and in some ways, the ways that they can be a, a place of dissenting voices. And also, of course, that is related to all of the Um, structural factors of white supremacy and class politics and racism that we've been talking about and how that influences, excuse me, how that influences, for example, media commentators' views of universities and what they should be and who they should be for. But I also think there's an underlying obsession there that on some level, I think I just don't don't get. And then the second thing I, I wanted to add to kind of bring in the aspect of the conversation that we were having earlier about the everyday lower profile or or sort of hidden quote-unquote attacks or restrictions on academic freedom thinking about the ethics forms and the room booking forms and the security forms and the controversial events forms and so on and so forth part of that is also that is also part of a much wider story 
about the sort of transformation of a lot of institutional structures centered on risk, centered on insurance cultures, centered on a kind of managerial bureaucratization that spreads its tentacles and reproduces itself and expands itself. And so I think also, while those trends are much wider than academia, much wider than than universities, that's also part of the broader societal or like meta story about how we're seeing the kinds of restrictions we're seeing and the kind of infringements we're seeing and the kind of what feels like an increasingly closed and small space that, as as others have said, we are desperately retreating to slightly higher ground to, to try and defend. Brilliant. Thanks, Lewis. And I think it's worth pointing out that sort of some of that sort of move to risk culture, like neoliberal managerialism, I mean, of course, is is uneven, right? I mean, there are certain country contexts where that's very explicit. The UK is one. I mean, I think South Africa is another. The US is like off the charts. But like, I mean, because our listeners are also based in in Europe, because this is the podcast of the European International Studies Association, you know, some of those issues are less explicit, for example, or less, less embedded um, within certain, you know, European contexts, they're just sort of these processes are just beginning. You know, people, academic students are very invested in in uh, protecting the university as a as a public space, as a space that belongs to the students, to you know, to academics. Um, you know, and, and we see these struggles playing out. For example, in Greece, this is a big issue, right? Currently in Greece, in an attempt to sort of protect. Um, the university as a, as a public space, a space in which uh, the state and the apparatus, the the violent apparatuses of the state, so the police, you know, cannot be present because historically, after the dictatorship, police were not allowed onto campuses of Greek universities, and so you know, and this managerialism, this risk culture is is very, it, it's not so present, right, in 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 the same way. So I think it's important that we understand that some of the everyday practices which impact academic freedom in some contexts are not present in others and there's other infringements on academic freedom okay to my final question and maybe this question and I, I'm now questioning what this question because the question is what can we as a scholarly community do to ensure academic freedom and I realize that I have an assumption in my question, and I always tell my students to always question the assumption in the question, that there is such a thing as a scholarly community. Um, so I'm, oops, please, please question the assumption in my question. What can we as a scholarly community, in inverted commas, do to ensure academic freedom? Somebody can go first. I don't mind who does it. I can go first. Um, what can we as a scholarly community do? I think, I mean, it depends on what your gradations of scholarly community is, right? So the, the four of us, five of us, uh, you know, we are a scholarly community of sorts. The EISA is a scholarly community of sorts. Um, so I, I think that there are um, there is space for action, uh, whether it's a particular university department, school, a professional association, the question is: um, what you know? What is that? What is the scope for action? Because I think that um, we all serve different roles, and I think the work. I think you know one of the things I wanted to say, which 
I was really trying to restrict myself to answering the questions, has to do with professional associations, right? That Louis talked earlier about having a lot of work around academic freedom, uh, sitting as a trustee of a specific professional association that focuses geographically on the MENA region. And I also sit as the trustee of a professional station, which is international studies. And I can't, you know, I don't see this as a significant part of my work in that context, even though, you know, I'm the person kind of responsible for ensuring that we're compliant with the law. And for me, what that says is that, of course, there are certain subjects that seem to be more susceptible to um, these interrogations of academic freedom. Well, why should that be the case if it's all about academic freedom? I think, you know, in a sense, the answer is in everything we've said before, that, you know, there is a certain hierarchy that is built into even the idea of academic freedom and the idea of freedom of speech, if you want to bring that in there. It's one that comes from the ordering of society itself. And it is, it is the case that, you know, hierarchies exist because of certain types of power structures. So back to your question, what can we do as a scholarly community? For me, there's one sort of big, in a way, existential answer, because I think it'll manifest differently given context, time, place, is consistently interrogate the hierarchical power structures as they exist that for me, dictated by my own ethos, that I move with those people who are sort of invested in a social justice, liberatory future, that the work, that academic freedom must serve for that particular end. Now, that's not to suggest that there won't be uh, ideas articulated that I might find problematic or, you know, offensive or anything like that. Um, and I think sometimes this is where even within our particular cluster of fellow travelers, there might be a bit of dissent that some of the things that we protest at and sort of say that shouldn't be uh, the case. My reaction is, that, well, I mean, it should, it shouldn't be. There are a lot of things in the world that shouldn't be. So I think that's fine. The thing that academic freedom, however, also allows is my right, you can say, to challenge both the premise as well as the outcome of uh, particular articulations. And I think that every time, as long as we're interrogating those power structures, as long as we're interrogating the harms and accepting that we can't do everything, we have to be okay with that bit because at the end of the day, if we're not, this is how our particular space devolves into, well, it's right or it's left or all of that. And of course, it's, it, is, it can be right, it can be left. But I also find that, you know, even that language is quite hierarchical because when we talk about academic freedom, although we know that we're talking about our context, we're, we're quite sweeping. But those strictures of left and right, they only resonate a lot in the Western context, right? So is it really useful to have conversations around academic freedom in that way? And you find that because of the ways in which we go about um, either challenging or um, wanting to uphold academic freedom, it devolves into that, um, which again, I think speaks to 
at the core of it, the hegemony of global northwestern knowledge production within sort of international global higher education. And I think as a scholarly community who do care about, you know, the ethical good of academic freedom, whatever that might be, because I feel like we've all agreed that it's very hard to come in, to come up with a definition, that we just need to keep and um, be consistent in questioning power hierarchies and those that uh, have historically and in contemporary times continue to harm us, our colleagues, and, and the space of uh, broader discourses around knowledge production. Thank you, Tony. I mean, I really also feel like we could have a whole conversation about the sort of the political economies of academic freedom, right? I mean, how much academic freedom do you have if you're located at an institution in the global south who can't access journals, for example? Like, I mean, there's so there. I mean, the materialities of academic freedom, I think, are, are, are re- is a conversation that's entirely missed from much of the discussion in the global north, which remains normative. Right. And we really don't move into kind of talking about the structural issues of academic freedom. Joel, do you want to take up what we can, you, you, you put your hand up. So I'm like, Joel. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to be honest. Like I, I was listening to Tony and, and, and I can, it, I, I almost was like, I have nothing more to say because I don't know. I, I'm anxious about attempting this because I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to say anything constructive or useful. Um, part of my initial thought was kind of the, the, the contrarian point, which is we, we shouldn't be with, with academic freedom, like that there's better kind of versions of this. There's, there's solidarity, there's care, that there's kind of an understanding of, of kind of not an individuated subject that has individual kind of atomized kind of rights that must be kind of respected at all costs. Like, I think we, we have to ourselves as part of a collective project and purpose and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think there's something there. At the same time, I get immensely frustrated with academics that sit kind of towards the pinnacle of hierarchies, kind of like people who are uh, full professors have pension plans and, you know, healthcare and, you know, structured leave and and a whole bundle of kind of goodies and entitlements that are just A, rare to begin with and B, just unbelievably under strain and stress right now. Um, if, if people in these positions in hierarchies, and I'm not saying all academics, the academic community involves people on term-limited contracts with kind of 4-4 teaching loads, and then there's research professors who haven't been to their office for three years. So so it's not the same. But the research office, professor who hasn't been to the office for three years, who's only in solidarity with themselves, strikes me as not someone who who is kind of worthy of, of kind of being a focal point of a defense of, of, of freedom. And and I think we've seen this in, in the UK around the, the, the marking boycott and the strike people who otherwise position themselves as these these kind of highly radical emancipatory scholars were, were perfectly happy to, to cross picket lines and have their research assistants write their papers for them and and so on and so forth. So I, the, the, there's a danger there. I think solidarity is better. I think care is better. I think understanding ourselves as not an, an, an individuated subject is useful. But I, I still think... 
people with positions of privilege should be prepared to risk something. <laughs> and and the the relative costs of, of academics speaking out and engaging on controversial issues are still, for the most part, and, and I'd caveat this very heavily because it's obviously very case-specific, for the most part going to be less than, than someone who works from a government who has to deal with whistleblower protections or you know, someone who works at a private corporation or so on and so forth. So, you know, it, it, it's not quite the, the, the Spider-Man thing with, with power and responsibility, but I, I do think academics have some forms of responsibility that accrue to having a pension plan and having holidays and, and, and so on that means that, that, that they should be prepared to take some risks. Um, so I, I don't know if that's necessarily realistic. Maybe it isn't. Um, and then finally, I, I was thinking a little bit about the, the open society. And, you know, it's something we teach our students. And, you know, I, I may disagree with you, but I will fight to the death for your right to say things I disagree with or whatever that aphorism is. If I'm sure I've misquoted it. I, I'm not sure we really believe in that anymore. Maybe we never did. Um, but but I, I, I do think at an intellectual and political level, there's an arrogance in assuming that your ideological and political positions are the correct ones and that, that the left can just as easily form into to ideological groupthink as the right. Um, and I've seen this in, in South Africa where there's, there's a great deal of sympathy and support for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, and there's a lot of academics within the South African Academy who are tacitly or sometimes openly supportive of Russian unprovoked wars of conquest. And I disagree with that. I, I didn't think it was a great idea. I, I think it's tied up in, in complicated geopolitics I can't get into. But I think we have to entertain the idea and grapple with it as the idea that we could be wrong and we could have missed or misunderstood and so on. So even if we don't believe in the full version of the open society, or at least that image is a utopian thing that never actually exists in practice, I think we've got to hold on to the idea that there's an arrogance in assuming that our way is the right way. And, and the only way we get to that kind of disputation and debate is to hold on to a version of academic freedom where people do things that aren't how you do it and you may not disagree, agree with them, but which you still see the value in them doing. So, you know, it, it's not everything, but it's also not nothing. I think we, we have to have the freedom to be wrong because I've been wrong many a time. And I'll be wrong again. And the only way we learn is by having that kind of pluralism. Fantastic. Thanks, Joel. Lewis, the last word to you, maybe. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I'd say I'd say a few things. I mean, first is to reiterate what you said a few moments ago, Polly, which is that, of course, this absolutely looks different in different times and places and spaces. And so what it means for people to... Uh, be involved in defending academic freedom will will look different and the challenges that people face will absolutely look different um to others and again the the point about materiality and the political economy of academic freedom is also really crucial and as you say that's can be about 
scholars not having access to journals at all. It can, as Joel mentioned just now, also be about precarity and um, which is also one of the a huge cause of, I think, self censorship among a lot of academics, which also uh, goes under the radar a bit in some of the conversations about academic freedom, and also then makes makes one question whether some of the, for example, government's professed commitments to academic freedom are are whole or are sincere, because of course a, a full commitment to academic freedom would also engage much more with the kind of political economy uh, issues, issues of employment, issues of access to resources, um, and all of those sorts of factors. I would also agree that the kind of care and support and solidarity with each other is is really important. And I think that the kind of defensive rear guard action we've been talking about um, over the course of this conversation is is far from perfect, but is also very important. And so some of that happens in unions, some of it happens in committees, some of it is in professional associations, some of it is in the meetings on a Friday afternoon that that were scheduled to get things waved through. But actually, by turning up and changing it, you can help students to, for example, right, help students to do the work they want to do that administrators don't want them to do because it's deemed to whatever controversial or risky or not the done thing or whatever it might be so i think it happens like we we whoever the we is as, as you say partly in the question can can do things on a whole series of uh different levels and in different outlets um and and i think all of that all of that work is is important um and then finally i wanted to pick up on something that Joel just said about taking risks because when I you know sort of heard the the question the first thing I think I wrote on my page was what we can do is is use it right like what we can do to defend or to ensure academic freedom is to use it and sometimes that will involve taking risks in order to kind of defend the space and protections we have I do want to go back to the question of what we're seeing in many universities, albeit exactly as Joel says, which is really important to emphasize, uh, minority position within the world at large in terms of what's happening in Palestine now, but in many European universities, and not just in the UK, but thinking of the different sort of constituent members of EISA, I know in the Netherlands and Germany and Austria and France, and I'm sure others that I've forgotten to name or that I'm not aware of, this has been a massive issue in the past few months and indeed we can say years. So I wanted to come back to say like a final thing about about using academic freedom and about the kind of risk taking that as Joel mentioned. Last week I went to a, a webinar called Scholars for Palestine UK and talking about in particular kind of what scholars can do on this issue and talking about the destruction, the, the deliberate destruction of education and particularly higher education in, in Gaza. And one of the speakers um, at that webinar um, was Rafif Ziada, who's a Palestinian academic based in the UK. And I'm paraphrasing, but but what she said was she's you know hears from lots of people who say that they're you know worried about signing letters or they're worried about speaking out or they're worried about putting on an event and so on and so forth. And she said, which really struck me and stuck with me that she said, I, I recognize that people are differently situated. I recognize that some of us have visas and some of us don't. I know that people are in different situations. 
But if you're not going to say anything now, when are you going to say anything? You know, if what's happened the past few months hasn't met your threshold, like think to yourself and question yourself, will that threshold ever be, ever be met? If it's not met when there's over 25,000 people dead and every university in Gaza has been destroyed or damaged and at least 94 university professors, our colleagues in Palestine have been killed in the past few months. If your threshold hasn't been met by this, will it ever be met? And are you going to do something or will you always be living in and, and giving into that fear? And it's not to say there aren't risks and it's not to not acknowledge that people are differently situated relative to those risks, which is always important to recognize too. That really stuck with me. And I think that's important for thinking about this current moment and thinking about, in a lot of contexts, academic freedom within it. But it's also, I think, something that has a broader and wider message on a range of different issues. And I think, as as Joel said earlier, the people who do have privilege and do have that institutional setup that allows them to speak out about these things should be doing so. And, and that can involve taking risks and that is the nature of the beast. And it doesn't mean that they shouldn't do it. It means that because that they are exactly the ones who should be taking those risks because they, relatively speaking, because they're the ones who can. Thank you, Lewis. I now realize we have to have another podcast on um, what is the role of the intellectual? Because I now have Edward Said sitting on my shoulder. He's been there for, he's always there, but he's really there right now um, around, around taking risks in these particular contexts. So I will say thank you very much, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Joel. Um, for taking the time. I think this has been such a fruitful conversation. I realize we've only scratched the surface and we will probably have to come back and revisit this at some point. We will be back next month with a podcast on what is genocide, which I think is a very fitting and timely issue to discuss. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast, feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. <laughs>